This is the Foreign Affairs Inbox, a podcast providing analysis of critical global issues by the Elliott School of International Affairs here at George Washington University. And I'm your host, Koji Flindow. We're joined today by Paul Williams, who's a professor of international affairs at the Elliott School and also the associate director of Security Policy Studies MA program here at the Elliott School as well. He's the recent author of Fighting for Peace in Somalia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. All right. Well, to kick things off, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the African Union mission in Somalia and why it matters today? Sure. Well, the uh, mission in Somalia is basically a response to the collapse of the state government that happened back in Somalia in 1991. And as you remember, from 1991 onwards, Somalia has been the sort of typical sort of case par excellence of state collapse, warlordism, gangsterism, state failure, etc. So the mission came about a decade and a half after that, when a set of governments, if you like, a transitional federal government for the first time was created in the early 2000s. And it was brought into Somalia on the back of uh, an Ethiopian military intervention. And when that government arrived in Somalia in December 2006, it met a lot of local resistance. And it was that resistance to the Ethiopian forces and the new transitional federal government arriving in Mogadishu that stimulated the growth of the al-Shabaab insurgency. And so the short version is that AMISOM, the African Union mission in Somalia, was then authorised by the African Union and the United Nations Security Council to come in and help the Ethiopian troops and the transitional federal government to protect themselves and establish a new set of authorities in the country. And could you speak a little bit more about who al-Shabaab is, a little bit about their history, their affiliations with other groups? Sure. Al-Shabaab is sort of the most recent version or iteration, I would say, of various Islamic extremist movements in Somalia. There had been a few different iterations of these sort of small extremist groups during the 1990s. But al-Shabaab developed as a small group of radical extremists in about 2005. We're not sure exactly when the sort of formation date was. And they basically organized and gathered as an alternative to what they saw as the corrupt, ineffective and sort of deeply unreligious gangsters and warlords that were running lots of Mogadishu and South Central Somalia at the time. And so they pushed a sort of platform that emphasized a couple of things. One was, as obviously their name suggests, the youth, Mm. right? They were a youth movement and they were trying to pull in Somali youngsters. Secondly, they were explicitly about anti-foreign intervention in the country. So their big rallying cry was to push the Ethiopian forces out of Somalia. But thirdly, they were about a sort of pious movement, if you like. They, they expressed their sort of religious credentials and they pushed for what they thought was this most just form of political order that wasn't corrupt. It wasn't run by gangsters and warlords as they had been in Mogadishu for a while. And so it was on those three sort of things together that al-Shabaab formed. And you mentioned that the second plank is that they're anti-interventionists, yet ironically they inspired more and more interventions. So other than Ethiopia, who else has been involved in the 11 plus years now of the AU mission in Somalia? So initially, actually, the Ethiopians weren't part of the African Union mission. So the African Union mission arrives initially in early 2007 to help the Ethiopian forces leave. Mm. The rationale being that it was the Ethiopian uh, intervention that was actually a major recruiting platform for al-Shabaab. So if the Ethiopians could leave and a more international presence, a peacekeeping mission Mm. was there, the idea was that this would reduce al-Shabaab's ability to recruit people to fight against it. So initially in March 2007, just one African country stepped forward to form Amasom, and that was Uganda. 
Right. And so for the first year, really, most of 2007 until the very end when a second African country, Burundi, arrived, it was just those two African countries out of the 54 members of the African Union that had turned up to try and protect the transitional federal government forces there. And then following that, um, what were some of the successes and failures of that two-country mission in Somalia? Mm -hmm. And how did that result in sort of an expansion of the mission? There's a long 11-year history there, but (laughs) I'll do my best to summarize it in a few key points. The first success was that they actually managed to facilitate the withdrawal of those Ethiopian troops. So at various times, there'd been up to, we think, nearly 15,000 Ethiopian soldiers in Mogadishu and south-central Somalia. And so the first success of Amazon was enabling those Ethiopian troops to leave. And the idea, again, as I've just said, would be to sort of calm the situation down. The second thing then that Amazon did is it successfully protected the remaining transitional federal government from al-Shabaab's attacks. Mm. And the consensus here is that without Amazon's presence, al-Shabaab would have effectively pushed the transitional federal government out of Mogadishu. And we would have faced the situation of al-Shabaab effectively running the government and the capital city in Somalia. Mm. And so between 2009 and 2012, it was Amazon alone that protected that government. Then it had a couple of other major successes. After four years of pretty bloody urban warfare, in August 2011, Amazon was able to push out the majority of al-Shabaab's forces from the capital city. And so by late 2011, for the first time, the transitional federal government was actually able to say that it could govern at least the whole or most of the capital city. And that started, I think, to turn the tide a bit. And so from late 2011, Amazon, for the first time, was able to push beyond Mogadishu. And then what happened after 2012 onwards, you see a sort of different phase of the mission unfolds. And this is where you get other countries from around the region joining. Djibouti arrives and Kenya arrives. And then a bit later, we have Sierra Leone. And then a bit later still, we have Ethiopia. And from the period of sort of 2012 until about 2015, Amazon was able to expand across South Central Somalia. And here, probably its biggest success was that it pushed al-Shabaab forces out of about 30 different towns and cities across South Central Somalia, which al-Shabaab had been occupying before. And then in its final phase now, sort of the last three years or so, say 2016 through to where we are today, Amazon has had another couple of successes. Number one was it was able to support the new federal government. So instead of having a transitional government in September 2012, Somalia got its first permanent proper federal government for the first time back since 1991, when I said the state government had collapsed initially. And Amazon was able to do this because it provided the protection for the electoral processes that led to that new federal government in 2012, and then a second disseration in January of 2017. And finally, it was successful in helping to facilitate the establishment of what the Somalis called interim regional authorities. Mm. This just means basically the regional authorities in a federal state model that are based in sort of southwest Somalia, central Somalia, and would be the sort of building blocks of the new federal state. So if you put all those things together, there's half a dozen strategic and important political successes. And notwithstanding some of those gains in acquisition of territory in Somalia and pushing out al-Shabaab and creating new federal government institutions, there have still been a number of challenges, in particular related to governance. So could you speak a little bit about the effectiveness of those institutions that Amazon has helped to shield and help to protect? That's the biggest problem, basically, (laughs) right? In terms of when you're given an Amazon mission, which is about stabilization, a bit about counterinsurgency, it's also a bit about state building and, and sort of boosting the local security forces. The problem is that you need a local partner to be effective. 
So external forces, as I've already mentioned, mm. can't defeat al-Shabaab on their own. In fact, the more foreigners you have there, the more this becomes a rallying cry for al-Shabaab's recruitment and propaganda. The trouble was for Amazon is that those local forces were never able to be particularly effective. And the key reason for this was because the Somali political elites themselves in the federal government in Mogadishu and out in the regions have never really fully reconciled or engaged in sort of, I would say, genuine peacemaking and peacebuilding efforts with one another. Instead, they've been squabbling about and arguing about different issues, mainly who's going to get access to resources and funds, where does power lie in this new federal system. And what this meant was that with all the bickering, clan allegiances, local allegiances and local sort of politics and economic issues took precedence over forming an effective central government. The other problem was just the nature of al-Shabaab as an enemy. Al-Shabaab, when it ran away from Mogadishu and it was pushed out of those towns and cities in south-central Somalia, it sort of changed into a more elusive transnational type of network. It started to engage in a lot more criminal and terrorist activities. And as it lost ground and territory, it stopped sort of being more of a government in waiting. And instead, it melted back into the population. And so this networked al-Shabaab was able to have quite a large degree of freedom of movement. It was able to blend with the local population. You know, its fighters don't necessarily wear uniforms all the time. And it was able to wage what I would call a war of destabilization or harassment using, you know, asymmetric tactics. This would include things like ambushing Amazon's convoys, assassinating key political and military figures in Mogadishu and other cities, sometimes waging big assaults on Amazon's forward operating bases, and using more recently an awful lot of sort of suicide raids, IED and suicide bombing attacks, as well as suicide commandos. So the problem there was Amazon was not really configured and didn't have the capabilities to take on that asymmetric networked form of combat that al-Shabaab was engaging in. Mm. And then the third big problem for Amazon is that, unfortunately, I think, international actors never gave Amazon the resources and the capabilities that it was promised. Sure. So you have in Amazon's mandate comes from the African Union Peace and Security Council and the United Nations Security Council. And in those mandates, they write all sorts of things about the level of resources that this mission should have, you know, 22,000 troops, 1,000 police, you know, about 100 civilians. And then they also authorize a whole lot of specialist enabling units. So things like helicopter gunships, armored personnel carriers, military engineers, medical support, counter IED capabilities. But unfortunately, a lot of those failed to be generated. And so you had this problem where there was Amazon on paper, where there was quite a well-resourced and authorized force. But Amazon in the field never had a lot of these capabilities. So to give just one example, Amazon was authorized to have 12 military helicopters. Mm. It never got a single military helicopter until wow. December 2016. So if you imagine what the equivalent would be like, would we send NATO forces to Afghanistan without air support at all? Of course we wouldn't, right? right? We would say this would be mission impossible. But this African mission had to fight for 10 years without any military helicopter of its own. And what that meant was Amazon, in effect, was slower and less mobile than al-Shabaab forces. And so it could push them out of towns and cities. Mm. But it couldn't actually destroy al-Shabaab's capabilities because it wasn't quick enough. When you put those three 
concurrent challenges together, mm-hmm. right, of disunity within elites, of the nature of fighting an insurgency or a terrorist group like al-Shabaab and the lack of equipment, what you get is a long, drawn-out conflict. And so the human toll of that must have been immense. Could you speak a little bit about how Amazon has looked to mitigate and been successful or failed in doing so and what the human consequences have been? Sure. Sadly, the negative human consequences of this war have been pretty much everything you can think of. Mm. So Somalia, as I mentioned before, from 1991 onwards is pretty much the paradigmatic example of state collapse and failure. And what we mean by that is there's a whole different series of armed conflicts and wars going on. There's not just the one war I've talked about between the government and al-Shabaab. There's actually lots of different conflicts related to clan issues. Some of it's related to environmental degradation and local struggles over sort of resources, access to water, grazing for livestock, this type of thing. There's also been a major humanitarian catastrophe. We've seen cyclical droughts and floods, food insecurity and famine sort of every four or five years or so. You also might remember in sort of 2008 onwards in particular, Somalia became an epicentre for a piracy problem. So off the coast of Somalia, a lot of tankers and yachts of tourists and the like had been subjected to pirate attacks. There was lots of kidnappings and ransoms of the hostages. And so for all those reasons, Somalis have actually become, to my knowledge at least, one of the most diasporized nations on the planet. Wow. So millions of Somalis left the country as refugees and were forced to flee. So now the question becomes, when you put Amasom into that situation, what can they do to respond? And the first thing to say is that Amasom's area of operations, as I've just mentioned initially for the first four years, Amasom was only in the capital city, Mogadishu. So it couldn't do anything to stem those broader problems that happened outside the capital. So that's the first point. The second point is the human cost of the war was enormous in terms of battle deaths and people killed through violence. Al-Shabaab is one of the deadliest insurgencies in the world, certainly in Africa, but also in the world more generally. Amasom is also by far uh, the most deadly modern peace operation we've ever seen. I don't know the exact number of casualties that Amasom has suffered because the contributing countries have never made this public, but it's well over a 1,000, probably nearer 2,000 dead peacekeepers. So the human costs and sacrifice of actually sustaining this mission have been enormous, you know, far more than normal UN peacekeeping operations and the like. Mm. So if you put all those factors together, yeah, it's been an enormous human tragedy. The good news, I would say, is, as I mentioned before, if you look at the strategic successes that Amazon has had since 2007, Somalia is clearly, I think, in a better place. It's slightly more prosperous, more stable, more development, infrastructure building. Diaspora populations are starting to return. You know, the difference between Somalia in 2018 and Somalia in 2007 when Amazon started is really quite huge and significant in a positive sense. The mission continues. It is still sustained. And what is the trajectory now? As you've mentioned, clearly things have, to some extent, improved. Do we think that they'll continue to improve? What is the future of al-Shabaab, etc.? The future is a difficult question to answer, <laughs> right? But I'll give you my sense of the key trends, yeah. So the first thing is, Amazon has been debating what it calls its exit strategy or its transition plan for quite a few years now. Peace operations always have to leave. They're not meant to be a colonial-style occupation force, right? They are meant to put themselves out of business. So how do you do that? There are really two options. You can either defeat, in this case, al-Shabaab, which is the principal opponent of Amazon. But as I said earlier, that is not going to happen quickly. Amazon can't do that on their own. 
just through military means alone, we are not going to defeat the type of movement that al-Shabaab is. This requires a broader sort of societal engagement and pushback against its ideas, its propaganda, its, you know, forced education and recruitment strategies, and ultimately a more effective government as a better alternative to Shabab. So if you look at that first option, you know, there is no victory in sight for Amazon. So this is going to be a long campaign. The second way or the second dimension that you need for your exit plan is to build up the local security forces of the host country. And here, Amazon has got one of the hardest jobs in the world because you know, normally we would expect the host government in any peacekeeping operation to have a reasonable police force, an army, a coast guard, a navy, maybe an air force, uh, you know, what have you. But in this case, we're almost starting from scratch in terms of building up the national security forces of Somalia. The Somali National Army is in a dire state. The Somali police force is not formally constituted or fully formed. There are all sorts of paramilitary and clan militia groups around. So that second way of generating a way out, you know, relying on being taken over by good local security forces, that also is not going to happen quickly. So for those two reasons, Amasom is going to be, I think, you know, debating this for quite some time. And it goes back to what I mentioned earlier. It's politics that's key. Right. Now, there was a report known as the Hippo Report, the high-level independent panel on peace operations, nothing to do with hippopotami, I'm afraid, but the acronym HIPPO. And it said the most important thing for peace operations is what it called the primacy of politics. Mm. You have to have a political strategy that revolves around resolving the war that you're there to deal with. So the primacy of politics means have we got a strategy of conflict resolution to actually resolve the things that we're fighting about? And so here the debate at the moment is, again, twofold. If we can't defeat al-Shabaab militarily, should we be talking to them? Should there be a dialogue and should we be trying to get a political settlement with either part of al-Shabaab or the movement as a whole? That would you know, remain to be um, seen. But one way to sort of ease the problem and actually speed things up would be to engage in dialogue and the best-case scenario would be a political settlement of some sort between al-Shabaab and the Somali government. Now, if history is any guide, whatever deal you sign with a group like al-Shabaab, and this is, of course, hypothetical still at the moment, there would be very likely to be splitters, spoilers, you know, people in al-Shabaab that said, you are sellouts, you are traitors to the cause, you know, you should never sign a deal with this type of apostate government. But that's one option. So if there was a political settlement, we might see a different type of way of ending um, Amazon, and that might happen more quickly. And so it seems then that a resolution and a withdrawal still seem distant. But a lot of these challenges, though some are unique to Somalia, some are shared by other insurgency fighting, peacekeeping missions, and the like. So what can the unique conditions of Somalia tell us about other peacekeeping missions? And how can Amazon be useful in, as an analytical guide for other missions around the world? Yep, that's a good question. So the way I think of it is in the book, I call it the Amazon model, right? That's just a shorthand for thinking about what are the different partnerships that have been involved in actually making Amazon work and function? And so just to quickly summarize them, Amazon is actually, I think, the most complicated peace operation that's ever been formed, certainly since the 1940s when I've been looking at peacekeeping missions there. And what I mean by that is it's very complicated because it relies on a lot of key partnerships to make it work. So the first one is the United Nations provides all the logistics support for the mission. 
because the African Union mission doesn't have the logistical capabilities to support its own peacekeeping missions. It's the United Nations that pays a lot of money, now nearly $600 million a year, Mm. to provide all the logistical support, the base defences, the food, the rations, the energy. There's a long, long list. So that's the first key partnership. The second is with the European Union. And the European Union is the organization that pays a lot of the monthly allowances for the peacekeepers. Again, because the African Union doesn't have the money to pay for its troops in the field. And then the third plank of the partnership is the sort of bilateral partners. And here it's the United States and the United Kingdom that are key. They provide training and equipment for the troop contributing countries to Amazon. So when I say Amazon's complicated, that's what I mean. You've got to get all those four groups of actors coordinated and working towards the same objective. Now, most of the time, for 11 years, that bargain or that set of partnerships has broadly functioned good enough, I would say, right, to achieve the things I've mentioned. But it's not been perfect. Mm. And one of the key areas where it's broken down recently is money. Mm. And for the last three years, since January 2016, Amazon has been operating with basically 20% less financing than it was actually promised. And so what that means is the peacekeepers in the mission, instead of getting the roughly 1,000 US dollars a month that they're entitled to, they get about $800 goes to the troop contributing country governments. That, as you can imagine, is not good. This has a very negative impact on the morale of the soldiers. They become less willing to take, I think, you know, proactive, risky and deadly operations if we're not even paying them the money they're owed. As I said before, the mission is also not fully resourced in terms of its helicopters, its engineering, its counter-IED capabilities, medical support and other things. So the model has not worked. So I think the first key thing we really need to remember is that the Amazon way of doing things or the Amazon model is really challenging. And if we can avoid it, we should avoid it. We shouldn't want to replicate the way we've done things in Somalia in other settings. So that's, for me, the big sort of takeaway. You've been listening to the Foreign Affairs Inbox from the Elliott School of International Affairs. If you liked what you listened to today, make sure to hit subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend. Our show is produced by Dave Haft. Our editor is Christina Wan. And thanks to the public affairs team, Robin Kahn and Colette Kent, for their collaboration.